This is episode 11 of the Immunology Podcast, Adoptive T-Cell Transfer with Dr. Christopher Klebanoff. Hey everyone, this is Dr. Jason Goldsmith and Dr. Brenda Rao. Welcome back to the Immunology Podcast, where we have conversations with immunologists. The Immunology Podcast is brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies, a global biotechnology company supporting life science research and fostering communication and collaboration in science. Today we have Dr. Christopher Klebanoff from the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center on the podcast to talk about his work adapting adoptive T-cell transfer to patients with solid malignancies. Well, we've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights in immunology news coming up. But first... Stem Cell Technologies would like to introduce you to human immunology news, covering everything from immunotherapy, autoimmunity, and adapting an innate immunity. Human immunology news keeps readers current with the latest news, research, policy, events, and jobs relevant to the immunology community. Subscribe for free at www.humanimmunologynews.com. Hey, hey, hey. How are you, Brenda? Hey, Jason. Doing great. How about you? Oh, you know, living the dream. Trying to get a little bit of summer in. You going anywhere by chance? Well, I am because the summer ain't coming to the lowlands. So I'm going to Spain in a couple of weeks. Oh, nice. I'm heading out to Long Beach Island in a bit for a little bit of time at the beach. Uh, but of course, I'll bring you papers with me to read because what else do you do at the beach except read papers? Hit me, hit me with what you read at the beach last week. So first of two papers, as always, uh, I'm going to go a little bit T-Rex friendly in my papers today. Uh, and one is one of my papers is going to harness T-Rex for good. Another one is uh, take, getting rid of, of T-Rex Um by a targeting specifically. Okay, so first paper, dual targeting of PTLA4 and CD47 on T-Rex cells promotes immunity against solid tumors. So we know T-Rex and tumors are bad news. Uh, so this paper from uh, Science Translational Medicine, first author, An Li Sang and Shen Wan Ren from uh, the lab of uh, Yang Xing Fu at uh, UT Southwestern. Uh, in Texas, they are uh, looking at what can you do about T-Rex in solid tumors. They are, we know that they are associated with poor prognosis, and we know that there are ways of depleting them uh, using antibodies, uh, and there's a lot of controversy whether, you know, famous checkpoint inhibitor uh, CTLA-4 actually works by inhibiting T-Rex that express high amounts of CTLA-4 on their surface, uh, and other, other molecules are expressed in T-Rex can be targeted, but we know that depleting them can result on side effects and immunity, uh, autoimmunity in other places. Uh, so it's very, very difficult to target T-Rex. And so as I mentioned, CTLA-4 uh, is a checkpoint inhibitor that has been used in the clinic with mixed results. Uh, can have very activate the immune system in a very uh, strong manner, but that often results in adverse events that are a little bit prohibitive sometimes. And we don't really know, there's still a little bit of uncertainty whether this CTLA-4 um, inhibitions is only, is mainly uh, targeting the effector cells and reducing their inhibition, or is actually depleting T-Rex by binding to them and starting uh, antibody um, antibody-mediated cell depletion. So uh, they're, in, this, in this paper, they're looking into a, a molecule, trying to de design a molecule that can try to, on the, on the one hand, uh, take advantage of the fact that the cells that have the highest expression of CDLA4 in tumors is often T-Rex, but without having such a high affinity that then they just find everything and also could, um, they could also bind T-Rex that are not in the tumor, that are also expressed in CTLA-4 to a lower extent. And they do this by combining another signal uh, that also uh, is expressed in many, in many cells, uh, which is mediated by CD47, which is a do-not-eat-me signal that binds to uh, what is known as a signal regulatory pro protein alpha or SERP-alpha. And... This uh, do not eat me signal is usually uh, expressed in cells and prevents or reduces the um, phagocytosis by, for example, other cells in case of opsonization, in case of uh, antibody binding 
on the surface of the cell. So what they generate, so there has also been uh, targeted, CD47 has also been targeted by inhibition using uh, particular antibodies and combining them with therapeutic antibodies such as rituximab that will provide uh, an IPNI signal with a FC receptor and then would, uh, by in inhibiting the do not IPNI signal that would increase phagocytosis of the cell. Now the problem is that CD47 is also expressed in, for example, red blood cells and platelets, and it's also sometimes hard to get the antibody into solid tumors because usually the, they're not very well, um, they're not very well uh, vascularized, or it's hard to get uh, these these things into the, the inside of the solid tumors. So what the idea is that they want to, on the one hand, block CD47, so block the do not IPNI signal, preferential T-Rex, and provide an IPNI signal, so therefore you can. Uh, macrophages or other uh, cells in the tumor can target T-Rex and deplete them specifically without harming T-Rex outside of the tumor um, and without and without harming other cells that are benefit um, uh, benef uh, beneficiary to the um, to the response. And so what they do is they do a molecule which has an anti-CDLA4 um, specific arm of, of an antibody. But then the other arm uh, is replaced by a SERP alpha uh, binding domain that would, that would uh, preferentially bind to CD47. But neither of these do it with a very high, um, with a very high uh, affinity, and only the combination of both molecules generates recognition and triggers uh, phagocytosis by, by, for example, macrophages. And so they do this and they test how uh, they do a bunch of, 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 of uh, experiments in mice using different mouse models, MC30A, which is a color cancer model for, for mouse uh, tumors. And they show that by treating this, they can specifically uh, target the uh, T-Rex in the tumors that have enriched expression of CTLA-4 compared to T-Rex outside the tumor. And the fact that they have, they use instead of using an anti-CD47 antibody that binds the anti-CD47 uh, CD very strongly, they use the SERP alpha domain. Uh, this, together with a also weaker CTLA4 binding, generates a very uh, nice and specific binding only to double positive cells, which in this case will mostly be the T-Rex. So it's a very nice, uh, still um, no, a mouse model. Uh, they do test it in, in, in rack knockout mice, and they see that uh, they, they only can see this effect uh, when there's T-cells involved, so by, by depleting T-Rex, and they show that they, there's a loss of T-Rex in the tumors, and they, they also, they, they, I think it would be a nice uh, platform to see if that can be applied into human treatment. Well, that's really neat. And so from a clinical perspective, it sounds like it's a bispecific antibody, which means it has two arms, which is actually a pretty common thing going through the clinic right now and through... Um, and by clinic, I don't mean in patients like FDA approved, but a lot of a lot of work's being done that in pharma land on bispecific antibodies. So it's it's quite it's kind of the next generation after these initial monoclonals with one binding site. So it's interesting to see this application and uh, Tregs. I, I I predict in the future we'll be talking about Tregs a lot, Brenda. Just yeah, you know, me it, too. It, I have that I have that feeling. But I, I just want to say it is a. It's not really a bispecific antibody because one of the specificities is actually the binding domain of uh, that that binds to CD47. So it's not really an antibody; it's, it's, it's the part of the receptor that interacts with CD47. Wow, so it's so a I cell. Think it's also even it's kind of a half half done a bispecific molecule slash other like or I don't know pseudo receptor sync. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that's like like Embryo works on. As a TNF receptor. Okay, interesting. Now that that that's it's cool seeing what they're starting to come up with, and you're kind of seeing that now that we have this proof of concept for some of these. There's a lot of like iterative adaptations, where, where I think we'll see a lot of therapy coming out soon. All right. Well, we'll play our usual game. Is this paper about our favorite virus or not? It is. A high throughput cell and virus free assay shows reduced neutralization of SARS-CoV-2 variants by COVID-19 convalescent plasmid. Uh, first author is Craig Fenwick, and last author is Didier Torono, and it's in Science Translational Medicine. 
So uh, obviously, if you, if you can't get this, this one, we, we have problems here. But we have a, another COVID paper. Um, there's two really interesting things, I think, about this paper. One is kind of the higher level thought. So this paper came out August 4th, and it talks about the variants of concern as the alpha and beta variants, uh, which because if you think about how long it takes to publish something and get through the process, uh, they probably did this during that time frame. So this just goes to show you for, for those who are more maybe new to science or trying to you know join this podcast to think about, to learn about things that aren't necessary in, in the trenches, you know, this work was probably done nine months ago and now it's out. And so that's why you're seeing a lot of this stuff on preprint. But, you know, still, you know, now we're already up to Delta. But the points here still apply. And this paper can be pretty quickly described as they, you know, we're trying to figure out if uh, a person who has neutralizing antibodies, how that works against various variants, right? Or do you have neutralizing antibodies? And the problem is these assays can be tough to do because you have to have good viral particles often is how the other assays work. The lentiviral-based system, as they point out, doesn't work very well because of where the spike protein is made in a lentivirus system is on the plasma membrane, but coronaviruses do it in the uh, Golgi complex, an endoplasmic reticulum. And so you don't have the same protein-protein folding package. So it doesn't, just, doesn't look quite right to the antibodies and everything else. Um, so you want to go to something cell-free as a goal, and can you get a good system? that can show, oh, these antibodies in this person neutralize the effect of the spike protein on the ACE2 ACE2, the angiotensin 2 receptor, right? Because that's what the spike protein binds to. And so they went with a cell-free assay. It is pretty well done here. What they did is they took Luminex beads and had those have the, um, and to try to describe this right. So they took a Luminex bead which is nice because those Luminex beads can be detected in flow later on. And they put that with a spike protein trimer, the full form, not just the monomer. They did the full trimer, which is part of their technology. Then to that, they add a ACE2 that has an FC, a mouse FC tag on it, so that you can use an antibody against FC tag for secondary detection. And so if you have fluorescence antibody, then you can detect that. So in a regular system, you take the spike, the Luminex spike beads, you mix it with angiotensin, the ACE2 recombinant, and cool, you'll see binding, right? Because you'll then all, all and then you put the antibody on, it flows. And then you convert this to a quench assay or a neutralization-based assay, because if you add serum from a patient in who's been exposed to COVID, then those antibodies will bind the spike protein and prevent the angiotensin 2 fraction from binding to it, which means there's no fluorescence. And so because it's Luminex, they can have different wells be, you know, you can have different beads with different spike proteins on them for the different variants that can all be read at the same time. And so you can then multiplex this. And so this paper basically shows they created a multiplex Luminex-based cell-free assay that works for detecting neutralizing antibody function because the antibodies will block this interaction pretty reliably. Now, it has all a lot of advantages over self, cell-based things, like this is way better. I think the disadvantage still is it still requires recombinant proteins, which of course anything will, but that's still going to be somewhat expensive, but it's still a heck of a lot faster than anything else you got. They use Chinese hamster. Ovary cells for the spike protein, that's pretty easy to get. I didn't look at, I don't remember how they did the ACE2 recombination, but you know they can pump it out. So I think you know this has a potential especially if they can scale it up and produce large quantities to be a really good assay. So I thought it was really cool. It's more of a technology paper, but I've gotten more and more assay development in my life recently. I thought this was really cool to see. And I also thought it was a really interesting point that they really validated against the alpha and beta variants. And we're already on to Delta now, our, fa our favorite letter of, of the month. Okay, what happens when we make it all the way to the Greek alphabet? You, you, you spike we... the football and we're done. We, we you just, you just don't care anymore. No. <laughs> That's done. That, then we just give up. Yeah. We don't count them anymore. We're like, yeah. this is it. That's all, the, that's all the Greeks intended. So let's just leave it to rest. Yeah, this is very cool because then it would allow for maybe more commonly evaluating the neutralizing uh, antibodies in, in patient serum without having to go through all the hassle, right, of doing cell-based assays. Yeah, no, it's really neat. I, I, and, 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 you know, it uses this existing platform, which is smart too. Luminex is a thing that exists and can be adapted for all types of different 
antigens. It's usually if you think about cytokines, but like it's 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 really it's a smart. I was really impressed with the approach. It was a smart design. The Luminex platform. Can you just quickly? Yeah. So you it? have beads that you attach stuff to, that then you measure binding to that bead of something. So you could have like, uh, and then you, you know some type of sandwich based kind of ELISA system, but it's bead based, and so those beads can have fluorescence on it and go through a flow. But because you have different beads, you can gate on two colors at a time. One, you know, one color being the bead color and the other color being your detector. So you can go of the bead color, how many green of the next bead color, how many green and so forth. So you can like do 18 cytokines at once or something like that on a Luminex platforms. Yeah. So you can, you can mix, you have all the beads in one well of the different types and then you add the sample in. And then because there are beads, you can actually measure them in a thermometer, right? Because you can measure just, and you measure the color of the, exactly. You measure the color and then the secondary output of what it's what other color is that you know in this case the you know antibody that is bound to the ACE two FC chimera. So you make okay. that sandwich very, thing. So, so it's very common for like you use it a lot for high throughput blood screening of uh, cytokines that you've done bad things to mice in. All right. Uh, then moving to my second paper of the day. Um, this paper comes from the lab of Timothy Han at the University of Pittsburgh. And first author, Amrita Bhattacharji. And it was published in Immunity and it's called Environmental Enteric Dysfunction Induces Regulatory T cells that inhibit local CD4 T cell responses and impair oral vaccine efficacy. And in this, in this study, they look into a syn syndrome that is uh, quite problematic in certain areas of the world where there's a severe malnutrition and uh, which is known as environmental enteric dysfunction. I'm pretty sure you heard about it. And this is caused, as I said, but uh, a combination of chronic mal malnutrition and chronic infection and results uh, in stunting of growth in children. And what is very interesting also results in a reduced uh, oral vaccine efficacy in children. Now, when they get their vaccinations, when they're young, uh, you see lower efficacy rates among these populations. And so when they look, when you look at the, 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 the intestine and the situation there, you see that uh, uh, children with EED uh, have microbial dysbiosis. They have uh, infiltration of lymphocytes. Importantly, they have a flattening of the villi in the uh, small intestine, and this results in mal malabsorption uh, because there's less area to absorb nutrients and therefore uh, the stunting and the growth issues. And so this, the researchers wanted uh, to look, uh, trying to generate a model, mouse model that would, with certain fidelity, um, mimic this, this, um, this pathology and that can use, be used to understand why is it that oral vaccination is uh, reduced in, in patients with EED. And so uh, one of the characteristics, of course, of oral vaccines and the reason why they're so can be very good is that they can induce long-lived intestinal uh, responses, particularly CD4 responses and IgA-positive plasma uh, B cells that by secreting IgA, protect the host from infection from uh, mi microorganisms that go through the gut. And um, what they see, so they they will look into uh, how to understand the, you know, the, the the immunity that have that in the gut that is interfering with the vaccination. So they developed this model in, in mice uh, by uh, finding a specific strain of E. coli that is uh, invasive. And they show that in mice that are um, subjected to a malnourishing diet, if they expose the mice to this invasive E. coli, they can uh, generate EED-like symptoms. They can show that uh, the, 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 the bacteria, they adhere to the intestine, they generate inflammation, they see a reduction in the, in the length of the villi, they see the mice lose weight, um, and they see uh, an decrease in intestinal barrier function. Now, these all are symptoms that are uh, consistent with EED in humans. And they only see this at a combination of malnourishment and 
the introduction of this invasive bacterial strain. So when they have the, this nice, they, they validate this model and then they use it to understand the consequences of oral vaccination. So when they compare mice, EED mice, uh, with regular mice, with non-malnourished mice, uh, they show, so they normally, uh, the, the immunization with a attenuated uh, a heat label toxin from E. coli usually generates a robust immune uh, response that is has a CD4 activation of CD4 cells with a Th1 slash Th17 phenotype. They also see the upregulation of B cells that are positive for IgA and a protective response against then the infection with the bacteria with an E. coli expressing this toxin. Uh, but when they look into the EED mice, this uh, response is uh, blunted. They see they use uh, MHC2 uh, tetramers to find CD4 C cells that are specific against this toxin, and they fail to accumulate in, the, uh, in particular areas in the mouse. So they look into, and what is interesting, they only see this in the small intestine. They don't see differences in the mesenteric lymphos, they don't see differences in the colon, but they focus on the small intestine, and that's where really the difference comes. And the EED mice cannot control an infection later with the, with the bacteria producing the toxin. And they see that the, 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 the composition of the microbiota is different in, in EED mice, also what's similar to what is seen in humans. And then, so when they look at the types of cells that are in the small intestine in these mice, they see one particular group, T-Rex. They see that T-Rex that are, are FOXP3 and raw gamma T positive cells, which are very characteristic of T-Rex that are induced in the intestine upon response to, to intestinal antigens, they accumulate and they increase their numbers. And they, what they do, they test and they show that it's this T-Rex whose expansion is initiated by the uh, inflammation caused by the, the bacteria, that they are blunting the CD4 response and therefore reducing the, the efficacy of the vaccination in these mice. So basically they show that the whole environment in the, in the intestine is, is modified, particularly the production of retinoic acid. That's probably the reason why there's an increase in the, in the induction of POXP3 positive cells. They show that rogamma T is necessary for these POXP3 cells to uh, accumulate, which is also consistent with previous with what we already know about T-Rex in the gut. And so very interestingly, also they correlate this with results seen in humans in which they see that children suffering from EED have indeed increased amounts of CD3 positive and CD25 positive cells in their intestine, which are probably marking uh, T-Rex. So I thought it was a very nice, uh, very nice uh, model and, and an interesting view on how T-Rex can interfere with with the immune response well that's really interesting and then of course the diet and the microbiome seem to be helping regulate the ability of the t-rex to do their job because of course hashtag microbiome team uh, microbiome exactly no no we're gonna make a gut uh immunologist out of you yet brenda <laughs> and you like t-rex right and t-rex are all they love the gut and you know oral tolerance it's, it's where you want to be it's where the action is all right. Well, last run of the day. Vertically transferred maternal immune cells promote neonatal immunity against early life infections. First author is Aina Analias Sletzer, and last one is Petra Clark Ark. Uh, this is in Nature Communications, and this was a really interesting paper. So, uh, you actually can detect maternal DNA or fetal DNA in a mother during gestation. But there's also maternal immune cells that in a small fraction transfer over to the baby. And these are called maternal microchimeric cells. We know they're there, and uh, they transfer from mother to fetus, and you can even see them for a little bit after the, the fetus is born. Um, and then they go away because immune cells die. Sad lives. Um, but the effects of them weren't really known. So this group created a mouse model to track this, demonstrated that, and then did a whole bunch of work to like ablate different immune cells in the uh, mother to demonstrate what happens in the fetus. And it's cool. So to quickly walk through this, 
they took the, the whole CD45.2, CD45.1 system, as well as this, uh, the MHC H-2D-B versus H-2D-D variant of one of the MHCs, and they used those to create markers that could track by crossing those mice so that the, the offspring had, were heterozygotes, and they could see those, what came from mommy and what came from daddy. And they could then track the maternal ones properly. So it, it's super clever because uh, they could like measure the fraction that was present in, in, in the babies to show that they had this, um, the MMCs were the CD45.2 H2D BB. So basically they were there one type, not the other. Um, so they could they could screen for that. That was pretty clever. And so they show that and they show the ethnic identity of these populations and they're mostly um, lymphocytes. And so they, they kind of do all that work. And then they look at the bone marrow and then do some culturing and show these cells help the bone marrow generate monocytes. So that's the first step. They identify, they show, make a mouse system and show that these cells in vitro help generate monocytes. And then they knock it out. So then they go and they... Uh, do a RAG2 uh, gamma C knockout mouse, and they're crossing bulb C and B56 mice together. And then basically they have MMC low knockout mice, because if you get rid of RAG and, um, and the gamma, you know, gamma C as well, you basically lose a whole bunch of your immune. So these are basically TB cell and NK cell deficient mice. And so if that's the mommy, then the baby has no MMCs, these maternal microchimeric cells. And then they look and say, oh, look, they have less. They, the, the MMCs actually make the baby make more monocytes from, the, uh, from their bone marrow. That's what they work. But it occurs in the myeloid compartment probably after the GM, uh, CS, the, you know, the GM um, cytokine induction step. So it's later on. They're seeing that it shifts kind of later and makes more monocytes. And then they got the clinical implications of this. So mice with more with higher numbers of MMCs and monocytes are more resilient against murine cytomegalovirus infection. And then where they really finish this off is they looked at human cord blood and, and, the, and the number of low re respiratory infections in the first year of life in babies and found that the more MMCs that were in cord blood, the less respiratory infections occurred the first six months of life. And they correlated very well. And the effect eventually goes off and wanes away. But the number of MMCs that were in the baby determined uh, how many infections they had. And there you go. It's amazing how many things we get from mom, huh? It's just mind-blowing. I don't think I've thanked my mother enough for all she's given me. Well, there's also those antibodies when I was a baby, you know, those maternal um, antibodies and then in the milk, like there's, there really is incredible how much of the baby's immune system can be determined by who the mother is and what the mother does. It's absolutely fascinating. No, it's, it's very cool. And a whole other angle that we hadn't thought about before. I think it's really neat. And they yeah. really started getting some mechanism with some good mouse biology and clever crosses to get there, which is neat to see. Yeah, it was indeed nice and clever and very elegant experiments. I, I, I thought I'm very impressed. Excellent, excellent. All right, then. Well, it's time to get on with the show. Decorate your lab with a Nature Protocols wall chart outlining the production of CAR T cells for therapy from Afery's collection and T cell enrichment to gene modification, expansion, and delivery. Request a free copy of the wall chart at the Stem Cell Technologies T Cell Therapy Resource Center by visiting www.stemcell.com slash T hyphen cell hyphen therapy. We are joined today by Dr. Christopher Klebanoff from the Memorial Sloan Catering Cancer Center in New York City. Uh, the Klebanoff lab focuses on T-cell immunology and has an emphasis on adopted T-cell immunotherapy. Dr. Klebanoff, thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Brenda and Jason. It's my, my great pleasure to be here with you. Thanks for the invitation. Thank you for coming. So uh, I, I, maybe we can dive right in a little bit into the research that you guys are doing. Um, 
So your one of your focuses is T cell immunotherapy and what can we do with those T cells? What can we treat? And particularly against uh, cancer, against uh, solid tumors, you have done a lot of work at understanding how do we make the best cells that how we identify the best cells to start these products with, how do we make them stay uh, fit uh, for generating the best uh, therapeutics? So maybe would you like to tell us a little bit, how did you come into this into this field? You had a lot of years working at uh, the NIH with Steve Rosenberg, Nicholas Restifo, also big people in the field. So maybe would you like to tell us a little bit about how you got here? Yeah, a little bit of a, a long and, and meandering adventure. Um, so I uh, initially became involved in tumor immunology research when I took a sabbatical as a medical student and uh, was looking for a research opportunity. I kind of had grown a little bit uh, uncomfortable with just rote memorization from medical school and desperately wanted to do something a little more creative. So I was very fortunate to be able to participate in a program which has since uh, gone by the wayside, but it was sponsored by the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. And it brought uh, early uh, career medical students to the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland. And it was this extraordinary open-ended opportunity. You didn't have to identify a mentor in advance of this program. You could just kind of show up on the campus at NIH and start interviewing around uh, there's over a thousand PIs at NIH, so it's just an incredible diversity and density of of PIs. And it turns out that uh, because your salary is is covered, and because I think there was a reputation uh, that uh, the colleagues who came before me were productive and did well, you know, you could reach out to literally any of those a thousand PIs, and they would respond pretty quickly, invite you to come through. So at the time, I was interested in cardiology, sort of, you know, uh, cardiovascular medicine. Uh, but I really looked at this as an opportunity to kind of broaden my horizons. And at the time, I noticed that there was a research team which was uh, led by Nick Restifo in collaboration with Steve Rosenberg. And at the time, they were deeply interested in developing therapeutic cancer vaccines. And as a medical student, I obviously had heard of vaccines. I had taken courses in vaccinology, and it was entirely centered on uh, protective immunity against infections. And of course, you know, primarily what we studied in medical school in the context of vaccinology at that point was humoral immune responses, generating antibody responses. So to hear the idea or the premise that you might be able to immunize in a therapeutic way a patient with cancer rather than an infectious disease and recruit T cells just, just blew my mind. So I, I knew nothing really about T cells at that time, had never heard of a therapeutic cancer vaccine. So I emailed Nick and uh, he invited me through and the rest is sort of history. Oh, that, that, that's interesting. I've, I heard of that program. Um... In the past, there was actually kind of like Howard Hughes did a lot of things. I was an undergrad fellow at one point with it. Um, so I wanted to dive in. MD, who does research now and a lot of research. I did the MD-PhD, which is the long, very delayed road to that process. What would you advise for people more on, on the MD side getting into research and how to do it without going back to, to grad school for a long time? How would you, what do you think are the avenues these days? As you mentioned, the Howard Hughes process doesn't exist. Med students can go around and beg to be in the lab, but just going and hanging out in the lab doesn't get you there. So for, for the people who are, who, who have realized that there's a lot to do there, any thoughts on how to kind of steer that? Yeah. So in full disclosure, I am an MD only. I don't have a graduate degree in science. Uh, I don't have a graduate degree in immunology, which is a, a point uh, that I remind all of the, the junior trainees who, who rotate with me, who work with me. Um, so at the end of the day, I think it's uh, just like med medicine, science is a practice. And so the only way to develop the practice is to roll up your sleeves and become involved. I think for you know more uh, classically trained clinicians who are interested in you know all of the exciting advancements that are happening in immunology, especially cancer immunity, uh, just finding a lab, uh, rolling up your sleeves, taking some time out, uh, uh, hopefully at least a couple year period of time 
is just a great opportunity to, to gain experience hip to hip with graduate students and, and postdocs. And, you know, it, it's a real truism that everything that is written down in a textbook uh, either is demonstrably incorrect or, or the paradigms change on a relatively uh, short time scale. So this is my bias, and, and I think graduate programs are fantastic because of their structure, but it's not the textbook learning that really is, is uh, uh, what someone is missing. It's really just practical, hands-on experience, and in particular, knowing how to not only uh, you know, sort of go through the mechanics of pipetting or sequencing or flow cytometry, but really training the mind to ask really important, great questions and to design experiments that actually will test the hypothesis and give you hopefully a quantifiable yes, no result at the end. Spoken like a true scientist. Oh, I agree. And one of my old mentors, uh, Balfour Sarter, was an MD who then also got the science bug and never never got the other degree, but demonstrated just like yourself that you don't need it if you if you get it right, the training right in the end. Uh, so I know Brenda, you you are the resident uh, cellular therapy person. So I assume you have about a thousand questions here, ready to go. Oh my! Oh boy, do I! Yes, uh, I would like to talk. You know, T cells. So adoptive cell therapy has been like on the making for, for decades now. Um, in fact, no, Steve Rosenberg was one of the, one of the pioneers by using till therapy. So, uh, uh, tumor infiltrating lymphocytes and, but you're focusing on using peripheral blood, your eye cells mostly and, uh, CAR T cells also, uh, uh diving into receptor, uh, uh, TCR transgenic T cells. Um, so what do, what does a cell have to do? to become a therapeutic and how do you choose the right cells and how does your how has your research focused on this question yeah so i think really great question so first and foremost it starts with having a t cell that is empowered and endowed to recognize a tumor cell ideally uh, recognizing a target that is highly enriched for or unique for cancer cells so that you can avoid uh, on target but off tumor toxicities so as, as I see it, it really just begins with finding a tumor-reactive T-cell, or if they, uh, a tumor-reactive T-cell does not sufficiently exist within a patient to engineer in that kind of reactivity uh, using what we've done uh, clinically most successfully to date has been you know, using integrating retroviruses. But there's some really exciting non-viral strategies that can also be used to not only introduce an antigen receptor, but really rewire a T cell to respond to its environment in completely new and, and, and novel ways. So step one is really uh, either identifying or engineering T cells that have the right kind of reactivity. So I think there's no one solution to this problem, but in general, I think there are certain key requirements that you need to uh, find in terms of the kinds of, of antigens. So first and foremost, especially if, if one is uh, seeking to target solid malignancies, which is really the focus of my laboratory, the focus of my clinical work, you need to find targets that are almost exclusively expressed by tumor cells and not normal, normal tissue. So this is a little bit of a different paradigm than the CD19 cars, for example, which have entered the standard of care, not just in North America, but also in Europe. Moreover, I think it's quite clear and really taking a page from our colleagues who use targeted therapies to drug uh, uh, constitutively active oncogenes, you need to find targets that are not just tumor specific, but also homogeneously expressed both within a tumor mass as well as throughout the body. And finally, you need to find targets that when you put them under immunologic selection pressure, it is very difficult for a cancer cell to expression of those targets and still be a lethal cancer cell uh, uh, to avoid potential immune evasion mechanisms. On that line, uh, you have you have now a publication um, by Archive in which you're looking into public neoantigens, which sounds a little bit like a paradox because it's really hard to find neoantigens that are shared among patients. And what is your, yeah, what's up with that? What is your your view, your vision for the antigens that we're going to start targeting. 
Yeah, so the focus of my group really has uh, more recently coalesced around the idea that there may be a very interesting group of shared cancer-specific targets that are derived from recurrently mutated, in particular, driver oncogenes. And so I, I'm a bit of a, of a, uh, have some uh, socialist tendencies, if you will. So I really like and embrace uh, the title public. The goal of the uh, public neoantigen concept is that there may in fact be a group of neoantigens that are not patient specific because they result from passenger mutations, but may be shared by groups of uh, patients. And the reason they might be shared is because the epitope that is recognized is formed from recurrently mutated hotspot mutations in driver oncogenes. Now, the challenge, of course, uh, is that these are intracellular proteins, and so these targets in general are not displayed directly on the surface of a cell. So you can't use antibody-based therapeutics or CAR therapies to target this class of antigens. You need to use an alternative antigen receptor, which is the T-cell receptor. And of course, the T-cell receptor, one of the, you know, I tell my students, the TCR is, I'm very biased, of course, but is just one of the, the most magical entities, the most magical receptors in all of biology. And it's because it can do this incredible magic trick of looking inside with extraordinary fit, uh, uh, efficiency to interrogate the intracellular proteome, but do so in a way that is displayed on the surface of, of the cell. And of course, the trick to this magic trick is HLA restriction. So in the case of the public neoantigens, the challenge is to not only identify such shared epitopes, but understand whether or not these are restricted by HLA alleles that have some common representation in the general population. Now, I think it's important to know uh, a couple of important facts. Uh, first of all, this is a point I think we'll, we'll cycle back to, what is the definition of prevalent? And I think there are some enabling technologies that can really redefine how prevalent a particular HLA allele needs to be to be useful. Second of all, the notion or the premise that shared new antigen reactivity is extraordinarily rare is really based on the observation that if you screen very disparate groups of patients who have heterogeneous diseases for reactivity that is contained in their tumor infiltrating lymphocytes or TIL, that if you cannot find reactivity against shared antigens, then it must not be common. But this presumes that there is a gold standard for reactivity. This presumes that TIL is the ultimate arbiter of what is reactive and not reactive. And there's some very, very elegant work, including work from uh, a, a Dutch investigator, Tan Schumacher, who has shown that there are demonstrably immunogenic neoantigens, but that there is a failure for, what, for a myriad of reasons for a natural T cell response to rise to the level of detection within TIL. But if that uh, epitope is then, quote, outsourced to a broader repertoire from an unaffected individual, you can find reactive cells. So first and foremost, I think it's important for the field to recognize that the statement that there are not recurrently immunogenic neoantigens uh, using TIL as the benchmark really suffers from a sensitivity problem, that TIL is really not necessarily the gold standard of what is and what is not immunogenic. So, so to go along those lines and to kind of put on the practical hat with uh, all the biotech I've been up to lately, if it's restricted to an HLA allele for, let's say you find the best public neoantigen you can for, for a cancer or maybe a bunch of cancers, I'll have the same one if you're really lucky, right? So this PI3K or PIK3CA, pick anything. What percent do you think you know, because these alleles are distributed across the population, how many percent of people with that cancer type or that scenario end up having an, the allele? Are these restricted to uncommon HLA types? Are they Are they the most common ones that are going to pop up and so you have a target? Do you imagine a repertoire where you're going to make a product that is for this public neoantigen and then you make eight of them for eight different HLA types or the ones that all work. And then that's how you FDA clear it. And so they get, you get HLA typed uh, before you get your therapy. Like I, I know, I don't know if you've thought about much of these, I assume you have to an extent, but I'm thinking about that from kind of those perspectives. 
Sure. So I think, again, immunologists and the cancer immunotherapy community should take a, a real page out of the experience of those who are involved in, in developing targeted therapies. So what the, the individuals involved in developing targeted therapies have come to realize is that the trick is really to screen patients in a very user-friendly way. So in the case of targeted therapies, it's really standard, not just at academic medical centers, but even in general practice uh, in, in the middle of America and in, in, in community-based practice, to the moment a patient is diagnosed with, with an advanced cancer, to send a piece of that tumor for next-generation sequencing to identify potentially actionable uh, uh, genomic alterations that you could pair with a therapy. And in the case of certain recurrent fusions, such as a, a fusion called Intrac, these fusions are remarkably rare. They only occur perhaps in a half percent or one percent of patients with cancer. But there has been the development of remarkably effective targeted therapies that target cancers with these recurrent alterations. And so if you can identify these patients and pair them with the right therapy, it has been utterly life-altering for these patients. Patients who had diseases that had expected life expectancy measured in months are now living many, many, many years just because the patient could be matched genomically with the right kind of effective therapy. So I think this really provides a very nice roadmap or template of what can be possible with you know, so-called targeted immunotherapy or public uh, neoantigen-targeted therapy. All of the seeds are there in our patients. We're already obtaining in the medical record the driver mutational landscape of our patients. All that is needed is understanding the patient's HLA haplotype. Well, for, for the vast majority of these next-generation clinical sequencing approaches, a sample of normal uh, unaffected tissue, uh, most typically white blood cells just taken from the circulation, are taken and used as a reference genome. So that becomes the substrate already to uh, elucidate a patient's HLA haplotype. And in point of fact, at Memorial Sloan Kettering, we have a clinical next-gen sequencing platform called IMPACT. This is FDA approved. This is CLIA certified. For research purposes, we are able to elucidate the HLA haplotype of our patients in real time. And there are other commercial entities. I'm, I'm not providing a, a, a commercial plug for, for any particular next-gen sequencing company. But a very large next-gen sequencing company in North America, Foundation One, also does uh, uh, targeted next-gen sequencing to look for actionable mutations, but also has the capability of elucidating a patient's HLA haplotype. So I think all of the seeds are there to develop uh, these kinds of precision immunotherapies. So in so much as your crystal ball can predict the FDA, do you think they're going to I mean, I think they would buy, this only works for this HLA type. That that seems reasonable. They'll do that now for anything. And they did approve the first uh, immunotherapies for all microsatellite instability cancers. Do you think, and I think they will, but I was wondering your thoughts. Do you think they'll go for like a, well, this is the neoantigen and these are the three different versions for the different HLA types that have it approach? Because I think that's where you're, you're talking about going. You have the ability to measure it, but then tailoring that therapy, which also means the trials would be interesting too. Yeah, throughout the world, there's already a regulatory template for so-called target-specific tissue agnostic therapies. And in particular, these target-specific tissue agnostic therapies take the case of you know, MSI-unstable cancer. Just by a single genomic alteration, you can give a patient an immunotherapy, uh, and that will be reimbursed by, by insurance companies. So I think there's already the conceptual framework for that. I think what the challenge is, is envision a situation where you're reporting an HLA haplotype into the patient's medical record. Uh, if that information is used to uh, generate and, and screen patients for a uh, allogeneic stem cell transplant, you know, perhaps the resolution of what's reported on these kind of tests are not the same sort of gold standard as might be done by the Red Cross or, or sort of dedicated uh, high-resolution sequencing. So I think there will be, you know, maybe some disclaimers that are reported saying, you know, you can't transplant someone based on this information, but you could use this information to determine if a patient might be uh, eligible for a target-specific but tissue-agnostic TCR therapy. Talking about tissue-agnostic, what, in your mind, what is the future 
of T cell therapies and uh, uh, adopted cell therapy for the different types of, of cancers. I think uh, a lot of the immunotherapy has benefited particular cancer types. Melanoma is probably the most the poster child of immunotherapy. But I know you're also interested in, for example, gynecological tumors. And what do you think is the potential of cell, uh, adopted cell transfer to these other tumors that don't really respond that well to other types of immunotherapy? And I also want maybe to talk to our listeners about what are trucks? So let's talk about the first question, which is what role will cell-based therapies, TCR-based therapies have for you know, more common, modestly mutated cancers? I actually think that the first TCR therapeutic that's going to receive regulatory approval is not a genetically engineered cell, but rather this really, really cool uh, biotech construct, which is a recombinant soluble TCR uh, that is a recombinant protein that is attached to an agonistic CD3 antibody, a so-called MTAC. And uh, at, at one of the large uh, North American cancer meetings, AECR, just a couple of months ago, it was reported a phase three clinical trial that used an MTAC or a soluble bispecific TCR that recognizes a shared tissue differentiation antigen, GP100, in a group of patients who uh, uh, have a very, very modestly mutated cancer that has tremendous unmet medical need, which is uveal melanoma or the rare subset of melanoma that's not highly mutated because it's associated with UV radiation, but rather uh, uh, starts in the back of the eye and the pigmented cells of the eye because of a recurrent, uh, very potent set of, of uh, driver alterations. So in this group of patients that really don't respond to PD-1, PD-L1, high-dose IL-2, uh, it was shown that the uh, company and the investigators were very, very brave. They designed a randomized trial so a physician could choose you know, anything in their armamentarium versus this experimental uh, recombinant soluble TCR. And this trial showed an overall survival benefit demonstrating that treatment with this TCR-based therapeutic could extend the life of patients with really uh, treatment uh, refractory, very otherwise poorly immunogenic subset of, of melanoma. So I think that just really pretends that number one, TCR-based therapies are imminently on the horizon. I don't know if this will be approved later this year or early next year, but I think on a timescale measured in months, we're going to live in a world where there are approved TCR therapeutics. And I think this provides a very important demonstration that TCR therapeutics are going to have a clear role in patients with very, very modestly mutated cancers that you know, otherwise don't respond to easier forms of immunotherapy. So uh, talking timelines, you've talked about public neoantigens, which I'm getting back to. Where is that in the universe of clinical timeline? Is it, you know, that nice pre-IND where you're starting to talk and things are moving? Is it still very academic? Yeah, you know, I don't know if you can disclose that because of ongoing work, but I was kind of wondering where you, where you kind of predict that is in the, in the tube. Yeah, so first and, and foremost, there have already been uh, trials that have been initiated targeting uh, groups of epitopes that meet the public neoantigen definition. Uh, in particular, a epitope derived from a recurrent mutation in KRAS G12V. Uh, for the PI3 kinase hotspot mutation that we describe in our manuscript, uh, we uh, have formed a partnership with a biotechnology company and are moving very, very aggressively. Uh, uh, we're in the midst of IND enabling studies. And so hopefully by late uh, 2022, we can begin enrolling a first-in-woman clinical trial that uh, makes use of the TCR that we identified in our in our preprint. Finding the right antigen to target is, of course, critical for these therapies. What I find really fascinating is also the effort that is put and the advances in the design of the receptors on the other side of the equation, and um, how very creative designs are coming into research, uh, moving forward from the original cars. And I think an example of this is what is known as struck T-cells. Um, not to be confused, it's the TRUC T-cells, not to be confused with TRUCK T-cells, which are uh, T-cells that produce specific cytokines upon 
car stimulation. Uh, but this, uh, these other trucks are a, have kind of harnessed the best of both worlds. They have the specificity of a car, but then the signaling of a TCR. Um, maybe you want to talk about a little bit about what it means to mix and match these different domains. Thanks for the kind reminder. So these are being uh, clinically developed by a biotechnology company called TCR Squared. So this can sometimes provide a little bit on first blush of confusion about, you know, what is TCR Squared? What is a truck? Is it a TCR? Is it a not? So, you know, as I was saying, TCRs, it is this incredible antigen receptor that has some uh, seemingly paradoxical properties. One is, is that it is a relatively low affinity receptor compared with a monoclonal antibody. And yet, one of the amazing things about a TCR is that the entire complex can perceive as few as one to three molecules on the surface of a cell. And this contrasts with a CAR, which appears when this has been quantified to require many thousands of molecules on the surface of a target cell in order to receive triggering. So what a truck receptor, it's a very clever design that actually attaches the antigen binding SCFV to a component of the TCR signaling complex, uh, one of the CD3 epsilon molecules. And this interdigitates into the full TCR complex. And the upshot, the functional upshot, is that a truck modified cell still makes use of a monoclonal antibody derived binding domain to recognize its target. So it's HLA independent, but recruits all of the TCR signaling complex. And so it can perceive uh, uh, antigen density that is several orders of magnitude smaller than what is conventionally required for a car. And I think this is so cool and so important because of a common mechanism of acquired resistance among car therapies is that the tumor cell does not have to lose total expression of the target antigen, it can just have a relatively modest decrease in expression of the target antigen below the threshold of a car, which again is several thousand molecules at least. And that becomes basically invisible to a car modified cell. Theoretically, a truck might be able to see you know, many, many fewer molecules and therefore that pathway of resistance would be reduced. But these trials are ongoing right now. It's very interesting also in the in the the field of synthetic immunology, what kind of signaling molecules you can combine to to modify the the function of these cells because you know coming starting from the first generation of cars, uh, there's which were fairly simple. There's a lot of combinatory uh, combinations of, of receptors with different types of, of, of signaling. So it's really, it's fascinating. Uh, it's just a matter of having creative and, and looking at the right component. Yeah, and I think that really, it, it's it's an incredible opportunity, but the, the combinatorial diversity that can be generated, especially because you can kind of mix and match, you know, what's on the extracellular domain, what kind of signal is transmitted to the inside of a cell or blocked on the inside of the cell. This just multiplies in a, in a hugely you know, geometric way. There are so many permutations. It gets really challenging trying to empirically pick the best one. This is just a shout out. I, I am such a fan of uh, my, my friend and colleague, Alex Marson uh, at UCSF. Alex uh, has been a champion for several years now of, you know, we were talking earlier, the standard way of integrating, you know, new payloads, including antigen receptors into T cells is integrating viruses. You know, Alex is really championed and in, in innovative non-viral strategies to put antigen receptors in. And more recently, what Alex and his team have been able to do is to integrate these uh, synthetic receptors or switch receptors that can sort of mix and match extracellular and intracellular domains and put these into pooled biologic screens and really let the best sort of T-cell modification win by, by different parameters. So I think these sort of large combinatorial screens where different combinations are, are in effect raced against one another is, is uh, really, really charting the path to the future. So do you envision a, a almost like a hot swap platform that may exist some point where you can, you know, swap, you can almost get like a platform approved? and then swap out either antigen 
you know, part, part of the receptor on one end or the other to like, you know, this is the therapy that's validated and these are the targets and you swap one another. I think we're seeing this now, like with the idea of the Moderna vaccines and the, and, you know, these mRNA vaccines that, you know, theoretically the next antigen put in them is easier to prove. But I was wondering if you can see this as well, maybe even for, uh, for, you know, CAR T's or other types of, you know, uh, synthetic biology receptors. So let me let me sort of divide your 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 question into two different areas. So first, let's go back to sort of the notion of pooled screens, the notion that there's huge combinatorial diversity. There's a lot of sort of tweaks and and switches we can apply to T cells. Establishing clinically which is the best one is 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 just untenable, right? We we never these are such bespoke, uh, challenging therapies to manufacture to deliver. The idea that we would do an endless series of, you know, what currently is the gold standard of randomized trials, half the patients get modification X, half the patients get modification Y, and you compare those two is, is simply untenable. So one idea uh, acknowledging that limitation and challenge that I've become really enamored with, and this really extends from, you know, my background and love for syngenic mouse modeling, is the idea that in mouse models using congenic markers, right? Uh, 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 mouse cells that have allelically identifiable cell surface markers that when you co-infuse those into a mouse, you can really do competitive repopulation experiments and ask you know, which cell population with particular genetic alteration leads to a phenotype in vivo that might be desirable. And I think that has been such a powerful tool among you know, syngenic mouse modeling why can't we apply that same concept to human beings? Why can't we, uh, by design, infuse patients with genomically uh, distinct, uh, uh, well-characterized, but mixed populations and effectively race these different populations in a competitive repopulation experiment inside of the patient and ask the question, if the question is, for example, which genomic perturbation leads to enhanced T-cell uh, uh, trafficking to tumors or enhanced T cell persistence, these kind of uh, unique clinical trial designs could very, very efficiently in just a, a few number of patients really quantitatively uh, test these hypotheses, address that question, and then we can move on and say, okay, this intervention did not lead to enhanced T cell trafficking, but this did. We can incorporate that into, into subsequent therapies. So I think that's sort of uh, uh, one innovative trial design that I think is underutilized and I'd like to see a lot more of. Jason, to more directly address your question, I think there's a precedence, especially with these non-viral integration strategies, because these in general make use of very targeted insertions you know, using uh, homology-directed repair. I think there's a precedence already where what the regulators uh, uh, really want to demonstrate as being safe is the genomic integration, the homology arms, the locus that is being integrated into. But if, for example, you're taking the variable, unmanipulated variable sequences of a T cell receptor that has already been inside of a patient that did not have toxicity to basically use those inner bits, those unique variable bits in a modular way so that you could mix and match. You could, for example, uh, take TCR clonotypes from a patient that had uh, patient-specific or private neoantigen responses, but is uh, not having a, a response to just that alone. Or you could use that as a way of mixing and matching these public neoantigen TCRs into, into patients in a, in, a, in a very defined way. It's exciting to think about this, you know, and we, we think about the technology, and I think it's important to realize, like, how much of this is predicated on things like CRISPR technology or even PCR that like, you know, I remember when I started doing PCR, doing real time was like extra super fancy. And like you still did it on a gel. And I know even before my time, it was in a water bath and it wasn't much before that, before they didn't even have it. And so just thinking about like, that wasn't that long ago, really. Like maybe not even 30 years really in a lot of ways. And now because you have that, you can do, you know, T-cell directed therapies and, you know, targeted therapies. It's, it's kind of humbling. You could do pooled genomic screens inside a human patient. That's wild, right? And I think we're really, I mean, technologically, we're empowered to do that. There's so many advances, including, for example, CRISPR, right? What you mentioned, Lab of Axe Marsden, they're doing 
amazing uh, directed uh, targeting of, of particular TCRs. It can uh, introduce anything on a TISA. It's fascinating to see how far and how how much the, the sky is the limit or the efficiencies of, of uh, integration are the limits, but they're working on it very, very efficiently also. Uh, it's been such a great, a great conversation. And I think that our listeners have learned a lot about the promise, the, the story, and what uh, T-cells can do for, for therapy of, of cancer and also other diseases as well. But uh, in a more kind of personal note, uh, we like to ask you, we always ask a question at the end of the podcast to our scientist guests. Uh, but if you were not a scientist, uh, what would you be? That's such a great question. You know, I think I have, I'm, I'm suffering here a little bit from recency bias. I really enjoyed watching the Tokyo Olympics. I think this was a fantastic form of escapism from COVID-19. And it turns out this was the first year that skateboarding was uh, a medal uh, winning event uh, in, the, in the Olympics. And Japan, incidentally, just destroyed both men's and women's uh, skateboarding. So when I was younger, I just uh, took so much pleasure in riding my skateboard. And so I think there's a piece of me that never really lost the skater mentality. Uh, and so I think if I could do anything, at least the idea of being a pro skater sounds pretty cool right now. <laughs> I'm afraid the, the sidewalks in New York are not good enough for skating around, are they? <laughs> Actually, at Memorial Sloan Kettering, there is a ledge which uh, some local skateboarders love to use. It, it, they can do grinds, they can do slides on it. And so I'm in my office and I hear them uh, skateboarding and have befriended them. So even in New York City, there's some great skate spots when the weather permits. So TikTok video with you doing a kickflip, right? Six <laughs> exactly. months? On that awesome. note, I think that the youngest ever gold medalist was, was it a British girl of 13 years old on skateboard? Yeah, I think Scott I heard that new. It was the first name. It was yeah. She had some great runs. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Brenda and Jason. My pleasure, also. That brings us to the end of our show. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.immunologypodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all of the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at at immunopodcast or via email at info at immunologypodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. See you next time.